Well, good evening. You guys ready for the end of the world? That's where we are in chapter 20, book of Revelation. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive into our lesson tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. We're grateful for the reassurance that you give us about uh, the battle for evil and the conquest uh, of good in the world, that, Lord, you do redeem us and you will protect us. I pray for you open our minds and help us to grow in knowledge, help us to begin to think the way you think, and, Lord, may this influence our actions, that we'd be bold to go into a world that desperately needs to hear the good news. In Christ's name, amen. Questions to that number during class? And let me uh, do a brief review. We just finished chapter 19. Chapter 4 through 19 is typically called the tribulation, and it's a, it's a section of the book, a section of visions. And I feel like, I was thinking this week, I've been a little hard on the futurists. Remember, futurists are, uh, I just don't think I've given enough credit to that idea, so I want to build that up just a little bit to you. Futurist is the idea that chapter 4 through 19, the tribulation, uh, all the things that happen there are going to happen in a seven-year period, in the future, at some time in the future, maybe near, maybe a little farther, but a seven-year time period. And we're going to talk about futurist beliefs when we get to chapter 20 also, but we're, not, we're going to kind of leave those four categories. But I want you to think about the futurist view. Let me just give you a recollection and tell you why this is very compelling, because it's probably the most prominent view in America. If you think back of what happened in chapter 4 through 19, you basically had seven seals that were opened, and that's God judging, really executing judgment on the gods of this world and on evil. And so things start to happen. You got those four horsemen, remember that? War, death, famine, uh, and, and pestilence, plague. And a lot of futurists see that as war happening. Antichrist is coming up to build this world government, and that there's a lot of war in the world, and with war comes famine and disease and brutality. And so then you have the seven, uh, after the seven seals, seven trumpets, and things seem to get even worse. And we begin to talk about armies coming from here to there. And the futurists understand this as very geopolitical things that will happen in this seven-year period. Finally, the seven bowls, and you see even more cataclysmic things happen. And some futurists see them as supernatural things, but others see them as the effects of war. For example, a nuclear exchange. And they see the darkening of the sky and the plants dying as really consequent to a nuclear battle. So they see it being played out in a very physical way in that seven-year period. And my point to you is, is I just want to give a little uh, a bit of credibility to that, because if you look at world events, you can understand how you could see Revelation playing out in that way. For example... We just had the Iran nuclear deal, and I'm not making any partisan statements here, but let me make an observation from a futurist point of view. If you're a futurist, you look at that and you say, I've got the tribulation, I see it playing out in a way that's consistent in their view, I mean very consistent with geopolitical battles and that sort of thing. We've got Iran who is likely, under this scenario, to have a nuclear weapon. What's even more important, I mean in a period of time, what's even more important is that Israel believes that they will, and so Israel is beginning to think through its future. Even more important than that is you have Saudi Arabia and Egypt, who are not the same flavor of Islam as Iran, and also see Iran as a very imperialistic power and a threat to them as well. Well, the world has basically said that it is morally and politically okay for nations to be nuclear. I mean, if it's okay for Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon, then morally and politically, okay for other countries to do so. 
And so you're probably going to see over time, and this doesn't take any brilliance to predict this, you're going to see some of those nations want to acquire nuclear capability to restore what they would see as a balance of power. From a futures point of view, so I'm not making a political statement, I'm just saying as you watch the news and you see that happen, from a futures point of view, you can see how this does seem to play into that understanding of Scripture very well. And so the idea of coming to an Armageddon as a literal worldwide battle in which God will intervene at the end of the seven-year tribulation begins to look feasible from a futures point of view. So I wanted to point that out to you because... It's, it's not hard to see why futurists understand Revelation in that way and think that current events, events in the world, reinforce that point of view. Well, we had Armageddon last week. We talked about the kings of the earth coming together, and then Jesus comes, the white horse, the armies of heaven, and slays them with the sword of his mouth. So that's typically understood to be that last battle, that Armageddon. And so we saw the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Satan, the great dragon, is still around. And so as we go into this chapter, chapter 20, Satan is going to come onto the stage, and we're going to see him play a role as this final battle with evil plays itself out. Chapter 20 is probably the most controversial chapter in the Bible in the sense that the way it's looked at, there's just so many views that have strong proponents and have had a wide uh, view in the church, have been held in the church. Part of that is it's just a little hard to understand the timing, but it is not hard to understand the significance of what's happening. So as we go into chapter 20, we're going to leave those four views behind. If you remember, we had chapter 4 through 19, the big question was, when will this time period, when will these events happen? And preterists say, fall of Jerusalem, historicists, it was a roadmap of history, futurists, seven years in the future, and symbolic says they're symbols, and it's true, but it's actually happened several times throughout history. As you go into chapter 20, we're going to get introduced to a concept of the millennium. Millennium is a Latin word that means a thousand years. And so in this chapter, we're introduced to the idea of a thousand-year reign, a thousand-year period of time in which something significant happens. Only chapter in the Bible that talks about this. That's part of why it's controversial. There's not much to compare it to. But this chapter is typically understood in three major ways. And that's what I'd like to walk us through. It's not the same as the other four views. In fact, they mix and match here a little bit. But basically the way views of chapter 20 shake out is the relationship between the second coming of Christ and this thousand-year period called the millennium, which I'll show you in just a second. The first view is called pre-millennial view, pre-millennialism or pre-millennialist. It's on your sheet. You'll see two flavors of it I want to talk to you about. Pre means before, so all that's saying is the second coming of Christ happens before the millennium, the thousand-year reign. The premillennialists will look at the very end of chapter 19, see Jesus coming for the battle of Armageddon and call, say that's the second coming, turn to chapter 20, see a thousand years. So they're basically saying we're premillennialists. Jesus comes, then he reigns for a thousand years. Another point of view is called postmillennialism or postmillennial. Post means after. 
what they're going to say, and you'll see why in a few minutes, they're going to say there's a thousand-year reign in chapter 20, and Jesus comes back at the end of it, at the end of that thousand years. And so after the millennium, post-millennial. The third view is called amillennial, amillennial, a meaning negative or not. It's not saying that there is not a thousand-year reign, that this is wrong. It's simply saying it's not a literal time period of a thousand years. It is symbolic of something else. And so you have premillennial, second coming before the thousand-year reign, postmillennial, second coming after, and amillennial saying second coming is going to happen, but you guys totally misunderstand the millennium. So those are the three views. As far as the other views, for example, historicists like Luther and Calvin were amillennial. Symbolic view, most people who take a symbolic view of chapters 4 through 19 are amillennial. Most futurists are premillennial, but some are postmillennial. So in other words, they kind of mix and match. So we're just going to focus on views of the millennium, the thousand-year reign. So that's what we'll talk about in this chapter. Uh, the outline of the chapter. Let's talk first. It breaks into four parts. I thought we'd just simply step through the chapter. It's really short. It has four major scenes, four events that happen, and then we'll go put those into the millennial view. So let's just go through the chapter and see what it says. Opens this way. Remember, we just had Armageddon. Jesus came, destroys the armies. He says, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Antichrist, false prophet, they're toast, lake of fire. Now we're going to deal with Satan. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. You've seen this abyss before in Revelation. It's where all those demons were that came out. The abyss, and he holding in his hand a great chain, and he seized the dragon. And here you don't need to worry about the symbolism. I'll tell you exactly what it is. The dragon is that ancient serpent, think Genesis, Garden of Eden, who is the devil, or also known as Satan and bound him with that chain for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Let me just make a couple comments about this as we go, just point out a couple things. Number one, notice the interesting parallelism. First of all, you've got Satan here at the end, same one that was in the garden, the one who deceived, uh, the one who accused Job, the one who tries to deceive the saints into following something other than Jesus Christ, the one who deceived the nations into following the Antichrist. So he is bound in the abyss. Think about Jesus being locked in a tomb, so to speak, and see Satan being put in the abyss, and you see some parallels. Because Satan wanted to be God, and the difference is Jesus goes into the tomb and by the power of God comes out. Satan goes into the tomb, and he is not able to come out. God is in charge. So you see some parallelism, but it really underscores how powerless Satan is before God. We're going to talk a lot about the binding of Satan and what that means, but I want you to notice that specifically what is mentioned about him being bound is that he is no longer able to deceive the nations while he is bound. It does not mean that there are other things that can't be happening, other spiritual warfare that's going on, but specifically, he cannot deceive the nations. And we'll talk about that when we get to the appropriate point. So, he's bound, thrown into the abyss. 
Next part. Then I saw a throne on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or their hands. Remember the mark of the beast and the Antichrist oppressing Christians? So these are the ones who remained faithful. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This is the millennium. This is the thousand-year reign. So Satan is bound. Here's a thousand years where some of the saints, some of the believers, are raised and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, the only thing I wanted to point out there is the people on the throne. So you begin to see some idea of judgment happening. A lot of different views of who those people are. Some say angels. Some say Christ. Others say believers throughout history. Jesus told his disciples that you will judge Israel in the end. And in our next lesson, you'll see some, a big judgment scene. So what happens after that? The thousand years ends, and when they are over... Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations. To the four corners of the earth, to Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. This sounds a lot like chapter 19, like Armageddon. These are all the armies gathering together against God's people. Potentially Jerusalem and this world army of the Antichrist, and God intervenes. Here you see something at the end of the thousand years that's very brief, but it sure sounds a lot like that event. You get the armies marching across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet, the antichrist and the false prophet, had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is bound. Thousand-year reign of the faithful. Satan is loosed, somehow finds a massive army, and we kind of do Armageddon again, or do we? It depends on your view. But you have this battle, and God intervenes. Fourth part. Then I saw, after Satan is now thrown into the lake of fire, a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and earth and sky, this is the end of the universe. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was found no place for them. In other words, the universe is gone. I saw the dead, all of them, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the end of the world and final judgment is what is being described here. The universe is done. We're through with the, all the battles, all the people, all the judgments, and we see this final judgment of everybody as the book of life is open and all those things Jesus talked about judgment are playing out. A couple of points here. 
In Ephesians 1, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, you, you read, Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions. And what he meant was, is that without Christ, your trajectory leads here to death, not just physical death. This is spiritual death, so to speak. In other words, this is judgment. This is hell. And so Ephesians 2.1 talks about this trajectory to lead to this place. 1 Corinthians 15 says something interesting when it says, it predicts this, and it said, the last thing to be destroyed will be death and Hades. Death itself will cease to exist. There will be no more death. And I just want to tie that back in. Here we are at the very end of Revelation, all the way back to the first of Genesis. Remember when the fall happened? When Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God. They're not obedient to God. And they are cast out of the garden and death enters the world. In other words, at that, from that point on, every human being has to die, is going to go through a physical death. That, is now the, that was not the design in the garden, but fallen humanity, that is the doorway that we all have to pass through is death. No more. At this point, death is done away with. There'll be more, no more dying. So there is no dying in heaven. There is no more death. There's no finality. There's no separation. Does that make sense? I just wanted you to point out, you see things come full, begin to come full circle, and that's part of what Revelation is talking about, is how God accomplishes the redemptive purpose that started at the fall in the garden. And now finally, Satan is destroyed. Death is destroyed. So we come all the way full circle here. Questions? That was very brief, but if we have any, we'll stop here before we jump into the views. So you, you see the, the basic structure of the chapter. Satan is bound, thousand years, somebody's reigning with Christ. At the end, Satan is unbound, somehow finds some bad guys, have a big old battle. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, and now everybody stands before the judgment day, and everyone is judged according to the book of life. That's kind of chapter 20, the events. Question? Can you elaborate on the connection between Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks and the tribulation, more specifically the 70th week not yet being fulfilled? Yeah, let me flash back to a, a prior subject. We're going to talk about the tribulation, chapters 4 through 19, and its tie-in to Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks. And we talked about this in the lesson, so I won't speak very much about it, but when we were there, we spoke about it. There's a prophecy in Daniel, kind of a week for a year kind of a prophecy. And we kind of did the math of those 69 weeks take you from when Daniel predicted it would happen to basically Christ. He didn't, I don't think Daniel knew that's what he's predicting, but the timeline works out well. But that 70th week, those seven days, which are symbolic of seven years, were not accounted for. It's as though they are going to happen later. Futurists believe that literal seven years is this seven-year tribulation in the future. And so Daniel's prophecy was partly fulfilled at the time of Christ, but that last little bit was effectively the seven years of tribulation that is described in chapters 4 through 19. The other views do not necessarily see the prophecy in that way. They think the prophecy is true. They just don't think it is true in that way. But futurists see that 70th week as the seven years of tribulation yet to come. Um, last week, you said you were mostly a symbolist 
symbolicist. Uh -huh. Do you believe the whole Bible is symbolic or the absolute infallible word of God? For example, do you believe Job was a real man or Noah's Ark was a real story or just parallel symbolic stories? Wow. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Uh, I'm not even slightly uh, uncomfortable answering this for you. We, we need to speak, speak uh, what we think. So, yes. Is my view of Revelation symbolic? Yes. That does not affect this class. I really want to do a good job of, because all the views that I'm telling you are Christian views, and they may be right. I am persuaded that I tend to see the events of Revelation in a more symbolic fashion for this reason. You've heard me say this a million times. Let the Bible be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. Revelation wants to be apocalyptic literature. By its very nature, it is very symbolic. Every point of view sees a lot of symbols in Revelation, and you should. It is symbolic literature. That is the genre. It's trying to describe things that symbols are the best way to do it. So I do view Revelation in a very symbolic way. Let me make one point, though, that I may not have done a good job of. A symbolic point of view does not think Revelation is untrue or that the things God say that are going to happen here are going to happen I mean, all the views I'm telling you believe the Bible. All it's saying is, I don't think that when it talks about a thousand years, it necessarily means a thousand years. It does mean something, but not necessarily that. So the disagreement is not whether the Bible is true or whether these things will happen, but what is it, how is it trying to speak to us? Moving on to the second part of that question. If you see Revelation in a symbolic way, do you see everything else in a symbolic way? That's a good question, because all these different views, the other views give them a bad time about something, right? The futurists usually get a hard time about, you guys are so literal and you're always looking at the newspaper and thinking you found the Antichrist. And the historicists, you look at them and go, you guys are so down on the Catholic Church, would you please get off this papacy thing, you know? Symbolic, I'm joking a little, but basically the other views, you know, want to criticize and say, I think mine's right and this one's wrong. For the symbolic, the criticism usually is, is, hey, do you guys actually believe the Bible's true? And the answer is yes, absolutely. A symbolic point of view thinks the Bible is very true. It thinks Revelation is symbolic, and it's speaking in symbols. Go back to, was Jesus speaking in symbols and the Sermon on the Mount? No, it's not symbolic apocalyptic literature. Let the Bible be what it wants to be. Let it say what it wants to say. That wants to be a sermon, and it wants to say exactly what he said. So I hope, I'm hoping this is helpful. Now, to the specific questions, what about Job? Was he a real person or not? There are Christians who think Job wasn't a real person. They take a more literary or uh, really form-critical kind of an approach to that. I do not. Uh, I, I do think that Job is a person. Uh, Noah, Jonah, there are Christians who think that. But that does not mean that people who take the Bible symbolically all believe that. I do not think that those are symbolic. I don't think that literature wants to be symbolic. Job is not apocalyptic literature. It's wisdom literature. It needs to be read like wisdom literature. Uh, the letters in the New Testament need to be read like letters. Psalms needs to be read like poetry. In other words, don't expect it to be too little, literal. It's going to give you these beautiful pictures, right? So... Hopefully that's helpful in answering the question. I do believe the Bible 
is absolutely true. It is absolutely inspired. It says exactly what God wants to say. In Revelation, I think he wanted to speak in symbolic terms. And in Psalms, he apparently spoke, inspired people in poetic terms. In the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke just in plain old concrete terms. So hopefully that's helpful to you. I absolutely believe that. And the symbolic view would absolutely believe that. It's simply let the Bible be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say. That's the other thing I would tell you. The three views I'm about to talk to you about, everybody believes in the second coming. Everybody believes that Satan is going to be destroyed. Everybody believes in judgment. There's no disagreement about the fundamental issues. It's simply a how will this come to pass and when will this come to pass? Okay, so hopefully that's helpful in answering that question. Okay, how do we get our name in the book of life if we are judged by what we've done? Isn't belief in Jesus enough? I'm glad you asked that question too, because uh, you've hit one of my hot buttons. Actually, kind of one of the scripture's hot buttons, but the idea is in the book of life, we're judged according to what we have done. So wait a minute. I thought it was belief in Jesus, and now all of a sudden we open the book of life and we're going to talk about what we have done. So how do we reconcile that? The Bible doesn't have anything to reconcile. This is a problem we invented. We think believing in Jesus and obeying him are two different things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I thought I just needed to believe in Jesus. I didn't realize I was going to have to do stuff, right? I'm going to be judged based on what I do. I thought I was going to be judged on whether I believed. Implicit in that is those are two different things. We made that up. We think you can actually believe in Jesus and not do what he says. We think he could be your savior, but he's not my Lord. Do you, do you understand what's behind that thinking? It's very common Western, real dualistic thinking. The Bible speaks with no apology about this whatsoever. It sees it as exactly the same thing. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you follow Jesus Christ, you want to be like Jesus Christ, you will do what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. The Great Commission was, go into all the world, make disciples of everybody, teach them to obey everything I said. So the answer is, in the Bible, belief and behavior are not two different things. The Bible's going to argue, if I say I believe in Jesus and I do not follow Jesus, I do not believe in Jesus. And they're like, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. You just can't separate those two. Make sense? We separate them, the scripture doesn't. That's why it can just comfortably say, and you'll see this other places there, yeah, you're going to be judged by what you did. Oh, so it's by works. No, of course not. You can't possibly do enough good to go to heaven. And you're like, I'm confused. We're confused because we think believing and doing are two different things. We actually don't believe that any other way. And I'll just give you a super, super simple example. This is just, it's kind of funny and it's kind of absurd, but this is how absurd our thinking is when we do this. It's like when you go home and you say to your wife, I love you, I love you, I love you, but you never talk to her, and you never do anything nice, and in fact, you don't come home for about a month. Now, she might start to think, maybe you don't really love her, right? Okay, that's a kind of absurd, but you get my point. You can say you love her, you can even think you feel like you love her, but if my behavior says just the opposite, what do you think? That's the point of the scriptures, is those aren't really two separate things. Question? If death entered the world at the fall of man, 
Where did it come from? If death entered the world at the fall of man, where did he come from? Where did it, death, where, where did, did it come where from? Where did death come from? Death is personified, by the way, in this passage. Death is not a real person, but death and Hades are both personified. That happens a lot in the scriptures to help us understand. We do it all the time. We personify all kinds of things. But basically, death enters the world uh, because it, it is a natural consequence of rebellion against God. Where God has this design in the garden where these bodies do not decay, not only does death enter for us, death enters for the universe. The universe dies, by the way. Did you notice that, what happened in this passage? It's not just every person dies, the universe dies. Romans chapter 8 talks about even the universe is groaning for redemption. And next week you're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. Whatever that might mean, I'm going to give you some points of view. But basically, this universe died. So death is a natural consequence of being separated, of rebelling against God. And since you brought that up, are Hades and Satan the same beings? Hades is known as the guardian of the underworld in mythology. Is mm -hmm. it the same here or something different? Let's talk about uh, Satan and Hades, and let's talk about using images and language. What, the word Hades doesn't mean anything to you, and that's why your English version usually translates it hell, because hell means something to you. Hades was an idea of a place where dead people go, because they didn't know where they went, so they went to Hades, this place. Then later, they said, they personified it, and they said, well, not only is it a place, there's a god named Hades, and he's the bad guy who rules over the underworld. The Bible uses that idea to help you understand what God is saying. He's saying, look, this whole idea of death, no more. It, that phenomenon doesn't exist, that person. That phenomenon doesn't exist. The whole idea of Hades, a place that you might go and wander after death, that idea is gone away. So it's personifying those things to explain to you that a change in reality has happened. Satan is a fallen angel a spiritual being. Hades is just an idea that God is using to communicate to us that the reality of you dying and fundamentally you don't know what's going to happen to you, that reality is not true anymore. I'll tell you exactly, he says, what's going to happen to you. So think of it more as an idea that God is using to explain to us rather than it ever actually being a place. That, and that might be a little difficult to grasp, but the Bible's using these ideas to explain concepts to us. Okay, so do we have two sets of Christians, one at the beginning of the thousand years, when it says the living and the dead will be raised, um, and they're judged then and go to heaven, and then a second set is judged and goes to heaven at the end of the thousand years? Yes, and that's a good segue into our next section. Let's start through these points of view, because depending on what you think is happening in the millennium, you're going to have a different answer to that. If you're a premillennialist, you're going to have more than one judgment. I don't know if you realize that. I hope that doesn't make you uncomfortable. But you, seriously, it's it, depending on how you see it. Let's walk through this because how you see chapter 20 is going to answer that question. It's a very good question. I'm going to start with premillennialism. Remember, second coming, thousand-year reign. Second coming for premillennialists happened at the end of chapter 19. Jesus comes riding in, destroys everybody, pop into chapter 20, tie Satan up, have a thousand-year reign. 
premillennial. But there are two flavors of premillennialism. The first is called historic premillennialism. And these are great little charts up here, but I put them there for you as well. It just helps to picture what's happening here. Historic premillennialism is probably, probably the earliest view of the church. I mean, the church in general, early Christians, they read Revelation, they probably understood it in this way. So let me give you the basic uh, chronology. First of all, premillennialists are going to read chapter 19 and chapter 20 in a chronologically literal way. And all I mean by that is the end of chapter 19 happens, then Satan is bound, beginning of chapter 20, then there is a thousand-year reign, then Satan is unleashed, and then is the end judgment. The, the timing is one after another. Pre, not everybody reads this that way, but premillennialists do, and that's what you see in this chart. Historic premillennialists see the cross, the resurrection. You see the church age. That's where we are now. They understand that there is chapter 4 through 19, commonly called by everybody, the tribulation, okay? Then they see at the end of chapter 19, the second coming of Christ, a thousand-year period where he is on the earth reigning with someone, and then the tail end of chapter 20, at the end of the millennium, is the judgment and eternity. So it's very chronologically in order. And that's one of the appeals. And most, almost all futurists are premillennialists and of one flavor or another. And you can see why. It's very futurists in general. They wanted to look at 4 through 19. Is this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And so they bring that same timing is very ordered and literal to chapter 20. That's historic premillennialism. Uh, first of all, the thousand-year reign is a literal thousand-year reign on this earth. The second coming will happen right before it, and Jesus will rule the earth for a thousand years. Society now is going to grow increasingly bad. Premillennialists, pessimists about the future of the world, that things are going to get worse, worse, worse. Then we're going to kick into the tribulation, chapter 4 through 19, and things just literally go to hell. I mean, it's really bad. Then Christ comes, thousand years of good times. Okay, so the world, the society is growing increasingly evil over this time. Satan was not bound at the cross. They read 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's 1 Peter 5.8, saying that's the church age. Satan is out there alive and well. He doesn't get bound until the end of that seven-year tribulation period, at the beginning of the millennium. This is a very tradition. You're going to say to yourself, man, this sounds pretty logical. It does. It's very chronologically literal, and it, it's a very valid point of view. The people on earth in that thousand years are all the Christians that are there. The ones during the tribulation get raised, and there are going to be a thousand years of people having babies and doing stuff and big kingdom and all kinds of stuff happens, and you're just going to have some of the Christians, not all, but some of the Christians will be on the earth in that thousand years. The rapture or the second coming of, uh, at the end of the tribulation is what starts the millennium. So I want you to think about that. Historic premillennialism says that the whole, everybody comes up 
and is raised to meet Christ in the air, that happened at the beginning of the millennium, at the end of the tribulation. We talked about post-tribulation rapture. Historic premillennialism says the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, and they're going to happen right here in chapter 19 and 20. And then finally, the church has replaced Israel as God's people. These are Christians. This is the church that's reigning with Christ during the thousand-year reign. Does that make sense? It'll make more sense when I give you another point of view here in just a second. Let me contrast that with dispensational premillennialism. You'll notice the charts are similar but not identical. Dispensational premillennialism is still premillennial, second coming, thousand-year reign. It's only been around since about 1860. This is a pretty new idea. This is Left Behind series. It's premillennial, but it's dispensational. What does it mean to be dispensational? It means quite a few things, but two of the things it means here is that the second coming of Christ and the rapture are not the same thing. They were for historic premillennial, for the church up until 1860. Then this idea says, no, there's a rapture of all the church leaves before that seven years tribulation. That may, we talked about that in that time period. It's a little different than the historic view. It says, no, second coming's gonna happen at the end of the tribulation, but there's a rapture at the beginning and the Christians aren't here. The second distinctive is that it's not the church that's reigning with Christ in the thousand years, it's Israel. In other words, this is God coming back to you. You got the church, they're off, they're up, they've been raptured, go through the hard times. You got the 144,000 Jewish evangelists trying to convince Jews to follow Christ. Christ comes back, sets up the millennial reign, and it's Jewish people who now believe in Christ. And he is ruling from Jerusalem a rebuilt temple with reinstituted sacrifices. In other words, God's going to finish the story of the Jews. So it's premillennial in its timing, but dispensational means, no, that's Israel who now does believe in Christ in the millennium, and it's Christ ruling from this rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. So you see, they're both premillennial, second coming, thousand-year reign, literal thousand-year reign. Both believe society grows increasingly evil, dispensational, rapture, Seven years of trouble, second coming, thousand-year reign, but it's Israel, churches in heaven. So now it's the Jews who have come to believe in Christ. So I hope that's clear. So that's two versions of premillennial point of view. All right? Think about that. I know you'll have a couple questions on it. But I want to go to the second point of view, which is postmillennial. Postmillennial says the second coming of Christ is after the thousand years. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, I thought he came at the end of chapter 19. Not for post-millennial. Post-millennial read that and say, that's really very symbolic because I got a big old battle at the end of chapter 20, at the end of the thousand years. Remember, we got the big old battle there and fire comes down and consumes everybody and then we do judgment. And here's what they say. There's the cross of Christ, the resurrection. We are in the church age. At some point in the future, there will be a tribulation. Chapter 4 through 19 will happen. Many of them say a seven-year tribulation. And the gospel power is going, this is a very optimistic view. They think society is going to get better. Why? Because we're preaching the gospel, and more and more people are going to be converted, and the world is going to start coming to Christ. The, the gospel is powerful. 
And so society's going to get better as we preach the gospel. People become Christians. And so this millennium is thousand years where things get better and most people come to Christ. At the end, those who don't, at the end of the thousand years, they gather together in chapter 20 and attack Jerusalem and God destroys them and then we have judgment. But they understand chapter 19 that Christ coming and that sword out of his mouth says, that's us wielding the gospel in the world today. Back in the 1700s and 1800s, you have these great revivals and just think, you know, after John Wesley's time and you get these great preachers and huge revivals of people coming to Christ. I mean, think Billy Graham is, is in that tradition anyway. That's post-millennial saying, hey, the gospel is what 19's talking about and we're going to have a thousand years of converting people to Christ and things are going to get better and better. And in the end, Christ will destroy those who don't accept it. That makes sense? It's a, it's a much more optimistic view of the power of the gospel. Premillennialists, even preaching the gospel, it's going to get bad. Postmillennialists, oh, it's going to get bad, but in that thousand years, the gospel is just going to overpower uh, everything. They think Satan is going to get bound, meaning he can't deceive the nations, and people are going to, going to take the gospel and come to become Christians in an unbelievably increasing numbers as Satan kind of removes the veil from their eyes, that God's going to intervene and say no you're going to be able to hear the gospel and come to Christ. That's a post-millennial view. Very, not very popular now, very popular back in the 17s, 1800s, early 1900s, as you see these revivals. People were so optimistic that if we'll just take the gospel to the world, that God is literally going to just bind Satan up and people are going to come to Christ. Very optimistic, evangelistic kind of view. They would look at uh, this idea is Satan is bound during this time and God opens the door. Final view, amillennialism. This is a very symbolic look at the thousand years. It doesn't say there's no millennium, it just says what does the millennium mean? It looks everywhere else in scripture and where you see thousand years in scripture, it almost never means a thousand years. Actually, they would argue it never means a thousand years. It just means a long time. You've seen the number thousand a lot in scripture and it almost never is trying to mean, oh, there were exactly a thousand. It just means this is a long time. So here's how amillennialists see it. They see that at the cross of Christ, the resurrection, Satan is bound. And they look at several passages in scripture that talk about that. The idea of Jesus in Matthew 12 talking about binding up the strong man. Remember, we was casting out demons, and they said, well, you must be on the devil's side if you can cast out demons. And he said to them, either that or think about this. If you're going to plunder somebody's house, you've got to tie up the strong man first, and then it's all yours. He said, maybe I came to tie Satan up, and I'm kicking the demons out of here. Then he says in Luke, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says in another time, he says, now the ruler of this world is getting kicked out. And so they'll look at it and they say, Satan was bound at the cross. He was defeated by Christ's resurrection. He was bound up. And now here comes the gospel. Amillennialists will say, the tribulation, we've had the tribulation ever since the cross. It will last till the second coming. In other words, there's evil in the world. There have been evil rulers. There have been people who are anti-Christ. They're trying to be opposed to God and persecute you and me. And in that same time, we've got the gospel out there warring with it. We are 
converting people. People are coming to Christ in that time. They see the millennium as that whole period of time between the cross and the second coming, and it's describing the power of the gospel, and they see the tribulation as the whole period of time between the cross and the second coming. That's Satan and his, uh, you know, the forces of evil in this world trying to resist God. They see it happening at the same time. End of chapter 20, second coming of Christ destroys evil. You have a judgment, and off you go. The, this point of view was pretty popularized back about 400 AD, and it's been more, you know, off and on popular. All these views have been held widely in the church at different times. So let me summarize that premillennial, you've got historic premillennialism, which sees it in a very literal chronological way. Okay, you've got the seven-year tribulation, you've got second coming of Christ, rules for a thousand years, destroy the bad guys and have judgment. Dispensational premillennialism says that's about right, except we're going to get the church out of here before we start this thing, the rapture, and then it's going to be Israel during the thousand years. Postmillennialists say, man, you guys are pessimists. The power of the gospel is what it means when Satan is tied up and that we're going to go preach and, and the word is just going to be powerful and people are going to come to Christ like crazy. Amillennialists say, you guys are way too literal, you know. Basically, it's going on right now. You see tribulation happening. You see the rule of Christ happening. You see the kingdom of God advancing against the antichrists of the world. So do they think that these things are going to happen? Yes, but they see it happening in a little different way, depending on how you see the second coming and how you see the millennium. Questions? Let's sink in just a little bit. I hope the charts kind of help a little bit. The issue is not, is Christ coming back? Is he going to rule? The question is, this language is pretty symbolic. In what way is he going to rule? Literally from Jerusalem in a new temple? Or it's happening now with the gospel. It's ruling in your life, my life, and it's going to spread throughout the world if we'll get out there and preach it. So it's more a question of how, not if this is going to happen. Question? Um, in the historical premillennialism idea, what is the point of the thousand-year reign? Why wouldn't God just stomp out Satan during the second coming? What, uh, in the historic view, what is the point? Yeah, historic premillennialism. Yeah, the historic premillennial view, which I just put back up for you, is simply, it is not saying, I'm going to tell you why God's doing it. It's saying, this is what the scripture says God is going to do. They would argue this suits God's purposes, that Christ comes back, the Satan is, is uh, bound up, the Antichrist are, are vanquished, and then he rules with the saints and reestablishes this millennial kingdom. Some people think, and it's, not, uh, it's an interesting point of view, just looking at this chart for just a second, from the beginning of time, Adam basically, Garden of Eden, so think a little off the left, all the way up until the second coming of Christ, the beginning of the millennium. If you look at where we are today on the Jewish calendar, we are just a little less than 6,000 years since the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't know that you all share that view, but if you look at an Orthodox Jewish calendar today, they calculate that the time from Genesis, Garden of Eden, until now is just shy of 6,000 years. They're young earth view. They don't think the earth's been here that long. Look at that thousand years in the millennium. What does that look like to you? That looks like a nice little seventh day, right? 
If God created the earth in six days, we've been here almost 6,000 years, and he rested on the seventh day, and there's a thousand year in the millennium. Some people believe the reason God did this is that millennium is going to probably start about 6,000 years into the start of the world. Now, I'm not saying you share that view, just saying that that's one of the ways they look at why God might be doing it this way. They don't necessarily know, they just think that seems to be what the scripture says he is going to do. But it's not an opportunity for more people to come to Christ. Well, certainly in that time period, you would, you would see that. Here's the problem. It sure looked like at the end of chapter 19, the premillennialists want to say that was the second coming of Christ. Postmillennialists don't. They say that's symbolic of the gospel's power. But if you see that as the second coming and we just toasted all the bad guys, it kind of makes you wonder, there's only good guys here in the millennium. And so the purpose then must be different. Postmillennialists say, no, chapter 19 wasn't the second coming. It's going to happen at the end of chapter 20. Don't you see it there? That was symbolic. Remember the sword out of his mouth of, hey, we got the gospel. Let's go. It's going to conquer. The gospel is going to conquer all of its enemies. Now you're making Christians like crazy throughout this time period if you're a postmillennialist. The gospel's powerful there. So the purpose is people are coming to Christ during that. So that's why you would see different purposes of God depending on how you understand the timing. Um, how do the Antichrist and the false prophet figure into amillennialism? The Antichrist and the false prophet in amillennialism, because it's, main, it's a very symbolic way of looking at it, it's basically saying this is true and it's trying to explain something to you by using symbols, and that's what it's trying to explain to you, is that you now live in a time where Christ has conquered, the resurrection conquered. It's just a matter of time. And that God said, I'm going to let time play out, and there's going to be a tribulation. There are going to be antichrists, Hitler, Attila the Hun, to-be-determined person in the Middle East, whatever. You know, they're going to be antichrists and have been. And at the same time, you are in the millennium. You have the gospel. It is going to conquer the world. The power of the gospel, the word of God, is going to conquer the world. Those are symbols of what is going on right now. So they would understand the Antichrist and the false prophet is not necessarily a specific person. It's every evil government that's ever been and will be. It's every false religion that tries to entice you away from God. So millennials say, this is going to happen, but those symbols are telling you this is happening now over and over and with absolute assurance, end of chapter 20, Christ is going to come back, and anybody who hasn't accepted Christ and is battling against God will be destroyed. So that's how they'll tend to see the Antichrist and false prophet, not as a person. Now, premillennialists, no. That's a specific person who's going to be operating in the seven years. So you see where the disagreement lies? The disagreement is not, is God true? Is the Bible true? The disagreement is, well, will it be a person, or is this an idea that God's trying to explain to me? That's really the difference there. I have a couple of questions about um, 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment seat. Do you believe there's a distinction between the judgment seat of Christ as described in 1 Corinthians 3 and the great white throne of Revelations 20? Is one a judgment of believers for the purpose of reward and then they don't stand under judgment for sin with non-believers? And another question asking about um, Corinthians 3.15, does that say that 
um, one can believe in Jesus and have salvation, but then suffer loss in heaven and face judgment? Yeah, two slightly different questions, but let me just grab the whole idea of judgments here for a second. I'll go to the premillennial view. This view has more than one judgment. And just to, to try to simplify this, basically, if you've got a rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, you effectively have made a decision as to who the good guys and the bad guys. I mean, let's stop and think about it. Let's say tribulation happens tomorrow, tonight, boom, there's a rapture. I wake up tomorrow, wait, I'm still here, there's been a mistake. <laughs> Call up heaven, check the books again, because somebody made a clerical error, I'm supposed to be out of here, right? In other words, my point to you is, there's a judgment happening there, right? If you're left, it's like, oops, sorry, you did not make the cut. All right, so there's a judgment there. But you see in chapter 20, this great white throne judgment, which they say will happen, see where it says final judgment at the end there, that view is going to understand that at that point in time as more of a, not so much a judgment as a condemnation. That's the resurrection of the unbelievers because the believers are gone. So basically, and it gets a little more complicated than that, but fundamentally that view says we got the good guys, so judgment happened. Everybody else is just waiting until they all get raised, and that's not a judgment. That's a condemnation. That's just sort of a, I'm going to explain to you why you did not make the cut. Okay? If, however, you do not see it happening that way, you don't need two judgments. In fact, you can just have this one in chapter 20, and that all the judgments are talking about this same final judgment. So it kind of depends on where you see God making distinctions. If you need to get the church out before the hard times start, then you've got to have a judgment there. If amillennialists say, I'm sorry that you're Christians and you're going to have to suffer in the world, but you're going to suffer in the world. And in the end, at the great white judgment, God's going to say, you were faithful through that judgment. Look what you did. You held to the belief in Jesus Christ. You were faithful. You didn't put the mark of the beast on your head or on your hand. In other words, you didn't bow down to other gods. Come on in. You, however, you sold your soul for money or fame or fortune. So they would see that judgment really being a judgment there. So that's, that's really pretty simplistic, but a couple views of how many judgments you would have would influence your understanding of that passage. Um, do you recommend watching or reading the Left Behind series? If you are uh, a dispensational premillennialist, just watch it a hundred times. I mean, it is, your, it is the story. I'm not telling you it's bad or anything. I'm just telling you it has a point of view. I'm comfortable that there are well-intentioned people who read the scriptures. They're pretty dispensationalist, bless your little heart. You're kind of adamant about this is the way to see it. And I understand that. And it is a way to see it. And if this is chronologically literal, it's probably a good way to see it. The whole Israel thing just depends on your understanding. Again, this is a pretty Johnny-come-lately kind of view. That doesn't mean it's untrue. I'm just telling you, this is not what the church has thought for a long time. But now you tend to see it identified with the support of Israel because Israel's going to play in the end times. You see this real intense belief of a rapture. We're going to get out of here before the bad time starts. So it's going to espouse that point of view. I'm comfortable with you reading it. It's going to be very persuasive. I would urge you... Read the others because they'll be fairly persuasive too. But so there's nothing wrong with that view. It is a particular view. Certain teaching that you will get by certain teachers, that is the view you're going to hear. One of the things I like to do, and I don't say this that I'm superior, is 
I'd actually just like to engage your thinking in this and say, let's go dive into the scriptures because I am actually comfortable whether or not you're a premillennialist, postmillennialist, or amillennialist because we're all going to agree on the truth of the scripture. We may disagree on when and how, and truth be known, probably none of us have got this exactly right. It's going to be, now, it may be the premillennialists will say, we were righter than you were. It's like, as <laughs> long as we're in heaven together, I'll, that's fine with me if you're righter than we were. But you know, God's probably going to do something even cooler than we think. So then why study this? That's a good question. I'm glad I asked. The reason that we study this isn't to argue with each other about, no, 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 that, that's going to be a literal thousand years or this or that. Welcome to our opinions. It's good to talk about God's word. It, that's a great thing to do. The reason to study it is everybody realizes, wait a minute, leave the details out of it. What's happening here? Even though death looks overpowering, I need not fear it because death is the one that's going to die, not me. And even though Satan looks so strong in this world and our world is pushing on us very hard, I have the absolute assurance that Satan himself ends up in the lake of fire. That I know that if I am faithful, I stand there and there's my name in the book of life because I trusted Jesus Christ and I followed him and I you know, did what my father's business in this world. That's incredibly encouraging in hard times. We should dive into this book because of what everybody agrees with. Don't dive into it just to get ammo to argue with somebody in a different position. Arguing's fun, not that bad to talk about it, but at the end of the day, shake hands and say, see you in heaven. We'll both be faithful. So that would be my suggestion on, on how to deal with that. Okay? Well, that's a good place to close this out in that nice little peaceful go out and shake hands. And I can already see the dispensationals scooching over to the side. This is, come on, let's just go over here together. And the amillennialists, you know, are like, hey, is this building a symbol? I don't know. Yeah, where am I? Seriously, it's worth thinking about, but the bottom line of it is is so incredibly encouraging. Now, here's the, the, the icing on the cake. The universe is gone. Satan is gone. We've just had the judgment. And now what happens to us, those who have said, your name is in the book of life? Would you like door number one, two? No, I'm just kidding. It's not a choice. It says, look, welcome to the new heaven and the new earth. Chapter 21 and 22 are very interesting. And you get a new set of choices on what you think is really going to happen there. It's all going to be heaven. Everybody believes this is heaven. But how you read this determines very much what you think heaven is like. And it probably has a little impact on how we live now. So here's the question. Are there going to be golf courses in chapter 21 and 22? Is that what heaven looks like? Is it a place? Is it a new earth? Will you have to mow your yard? Will there be mosquitoes there? And then the perennial question, will my pets be there with me? Next week, see you guys there. <laughs>